The funeral sermon is going to be taken today from John 11, and I'm going to be reading verses 12 through 45, which is an extended section. I would encourage you to either uh, follow along with me on the screen, or better yet, to look on in your Bible. You should have a pulpit Bible, or pew Bible rather, in front of you. And this taken from John chapter 11, and then starting with verse 11. John 11, starting with verse 11. Before we go to the Word of God, though, let's go to the God who gave us this Word, and let's ask for His help in understanding it. God, our Father, in a time of loss, we come to You seeking understanding. Lord, there are many who do not realize that all the days of their lives were appointed before they ever began. They did not realize that they were created for your glory, Lord, to worship you. And so, Lord, they live as though everything is a result of random chance. But we know that's not the case. For our Savior Jesus told us so. Before he left his disciples, he said that he went to prepare a place for them. And that if it were not so, he would have told them. He came into the world in order to save us from our sins. And to make certain our deliverance and then our resurrection. So, Lord, as we look to these words now, we pray that you would be the light of our minds, that you would comfort our hearts, and that you would be our refuge, our deliverer, and our strong tower in this time. We pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. John chapter 11, starting with verse 11. These things he said, and after that he said to them, Our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. Then his disciples said, Lord, if he sleeps, he will get well. However, Jesus spoke of his death. But they thought he was speaking about rest and sleep. Then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead, and I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. Then Thomas, who was called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go that we may die with him. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went her way and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, And the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? 
Then Jesus, again groaning in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, said to him, Lord, by this time there's a stench, for he's been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me, but because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they may believe that you sent me. Now when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth! And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said to him, Loose him and let him go. Then many of the Jews who had came, come to Mary and had seen the things Jesus did, believed in him. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Those words that I just read from the Apostle John have been on my mind a lot lately. I read them last week when I was visiting Phil uh, just a little after he had a heart attack. I didn't manage to finish the chapter, though. I I stopped short. It is a long chapter. But um, I had a chance to read them again when I was meeting with the family after he had passed away. Uh, It's a long section of scripture, but it actually contains the shortest verse in the entire Bible. I'm sure you know that. Uh, Verse 35, Jesus wept. Just two words. I'd like us to focus on those, uh, those two words, that little verse today. Uh, it may be short, but it's also of great, great importance. In fact, Charles Spurgeon was right when he said, there is infinitely more in these two words than any sermonizer or student of the word will ever be able to bring out of them, even though he should apply the microscope of the most attentive consideration. So if Spurgeon said that, there's a little chance I'm going to be able to plumb the depths of them tonight for you. But uh, nonetheless, together, let's, let's try to... Uh, to see why it was that Jesus wept. Why is that? Uh, The words Jesus wept themselves aren't hard to understand. We all know what weeping is. Uh, Tears come out of your eyes. They flow down your cheek. And and we can understand, we can well understand, why anyone would weep at the grave of a well-beloved friend. That is natural. And if it had been said, Martha wept, or Mary wept, or the Jews wept, or even the disciples wept, we could understand it. They were in the throes of loss. Their hearts were touched. But they are all ordinary people, ordinary mortal men and women who had just lost their dear friend and brother. But verse 35 says, not they wept, but that Jesus wept. And he did so just prior, remember, to raising his friend Lazarus from the dead. And he knew he was going to do it. He went there specifically four days late. He tarried those four days so that he could raise Lazarus from the dead. If ever a sad story ended happily, this is it. So why weep? Why did Jesus weep? Given the circumstances, we might expect to read that Jesus smiled reassuringly to all of them and he said, don't cry, didn't I tell you this sickness is not unto death? And then raised Lazarus, and everybody would have been mystified, awestruck, and happy at that moment. But we don't read that. We read in these verses that Jesus wept, and that he groaned in his spirit, and he was troubled. Now, what should you and I learn from that? The fact that our Savior, Jesus Christ himself, wept and was troubled in his spirit. Well, 
you know what happened before that moment. Jesus' dear friends, Martha and Mary, had seen Jesus, uh, had sent to Jesus asking for him to come quickly and cure Lazarus, their brother who was very ill. But Jesus didn't. Jesus tarried. He stayed away four days. Now, in that, we need to learn something as well, which is this. I know you've experienced this yourself. Sometimes we ask Jesus for something we desperately want. Often it will be literally the healing of a loved one, perhaps someone uh, at death's door. But then the answer comes, and the answer is no. But the answer is not no because he doesn't love us, or no because he doesn't care about us, but rather it is no because he has something better for them, better perhaps for the person that we are, we are praying for, better because it glorifies God even more. I have prayed, in my time as a pastor for many people, I've prayed for the the healing of desperately ill brothers and sisters, and I have to tell you this, I have seen miraculous recoveries. I have literally seen somebody who had a cancerous tumor who was being prayed for desperately by the church. That cancerous tumor suddenly disappeared And the doctors could not understand it. The person who was being prayed for said, I can understand it because my God still loves me and works miracles. And that happens. But on occasion, there has been a dear brother or sister in Christ I've been praying for, and God has answered, no, I am going to do something better for them and for my glory. Now, Martha didn't realize that when she met him on the road. Now, we don't realize that either. Because we don't know his plan. We don't know the end from the beginning the way that he does. Martha, we see in the, uh, in, uh, the text, she calls Mary, and Mary gets up and she runs to Jesus and she falls at his feet. And have you ever noticed in the scriptures that whenever Mary is mentioned, she's at the feet of Jesus? That is her natural place. It should be our natural place as well. We, we should learn that. We would learn uh, from her that devotion is what we owe Christ. Uh, Mary says the same thing, though, as Martha, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. Both of the sisters understood that no one whom Jesus loved could die in his presence. They knew that for a certainty, but they are about to learn, even more importantly, that no one whom Jesus loves will stay dead when he comes for them. And that's the most important lesson. Mary and the other mourners, we read, they were overcome with grief and weeping and wailing. And because of that, Jesus groans in his spirit. He is troubled. Uh, The word there, groaned in the Greek, it's a word that indicates groaning from sorrow, but also groaning from anger, from outrage, from indignation. Jesus then follows up by asking where they put Lazarus. They take him to the tomb, and we read that there he wept. Tears came down from his eyes and visibly rolled down his cheeks, and everyone there saw it, and they knew that his heart was being riven in that moment. They assumed that it was from sympathy, because clearly he loved Lazarus, his friend. Uh, some clearly at that point, they became a little indignant. If Jesus had the power to work miracles, why, why wouldn't he have come earlier? Uh, there's more than a hint of accusation there. But, but before we get all indignant at them and say, how could they get indignant at Christ for tearing? Let us remember that we have probably done the same thing, haven't we? 
I know I have. When something terrible is happening to us or to someone we love, or we suddenly suffer a loss, there's something in us that grumbles. Why is God allowing this to happen? If God truly loves me, then why? Why am I suffering like this? Or why is my loved one suffering like this? They saw him weep. But it wasn't for the same reasons they were weeping. And we can learn many facts uh, from the fact that Jesus was uh, was weeping that day, rather. First, this weeping shows us his humanity. Jesus is the Son of God. He is the second person of the triune Godhead. Uh, But we also remember that he took to himself in his incarnation a true body and a reasonable soul, as the Westminster uh, Catechism Confession puts it so well. Jesus had intense feelings and thoughts, just as any of us would, behind those tears that were rolling down his cheeks. Jesus wept because Lazarus, his dear friend, had been taken by death. He wept also because of the pain that was causing Mary to wail. And you and I, we may see someone weep and we may empathize. I hope you empathize with those who are weeping. You're not unmoved by it. And we may cry as a result. I'm I'm related to somebody who can't see people crying without crying themselves. It's a common reaction we have, an empathetic reaction. But we do not truly, even though we may empathize, and we may say, I feel your pain, but we do not truly do. We, we don't feel their pain. We feel something like to it. But being the Son of God, remember this, Jesus knew exactly the pain that Mary was feeling. And Christians, remember this. When you suffer loss, your Savior knows your pain, your sympathetic Savior. Hebrews 4.15 assures us of that. It says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And with Christ, it truly was compassion. He came alongside them. He suffered with them. Before he went to the cross, that is, and suffered at the cross for them. He wept also, remember this, for the terrible consequences of sin in the world. He wasn't just weeping for the consequences of sin in the life of his friend Lazarus. He was weeping for what sin and the fall had done to the world. He wept because of what death had done to his friend, how it had ripped apart his family, and how it was causing terrible heartache for all those who had loved and now lost. Because that's not how it's supposed to be, and we need to remember that. Death is not right. Death is something that sin brought in. It's a a separation, a tearing away, not just of soul and body for a time, but it's one thing that separates us from our loved ones. It's a terrible thing. And Jesus, in the best sense, hated death with a righteous anger. And that's why Jesus groans with indignation at seeing what our enemy death has done to us. And even then, he was preparing. Understand this. As he goes to the tomb, he is preparing for the battle that would ultimately put an end to death, what he was going to do at the cross. B.B. Warfield put it beautifully. He said, it is death that is the object of his wrath. And behind death, him who has the power of death and whom he has come into the world to destroy. 
Tears of sympathy may fill his eyes, but this is incidental. His soul is held by rage, and he advances to the tomb, in Calvin's words, as a champion who prepares for conflict. The raising of Lazarus thus becomes not an isolated miracle, but a decisive instance and open symbol of Jesus' conquest of death and hell. What John does for us in this particular statement is to uncover to us the heart of Jesus as he wins for us our salvation, not in cold unconcern, but in flaming wrath against the foe. Jesus smites in our behalf. He has not only saved us from the evils which oppress us, he has felt for and with us in our oppression, and under the power of these feelings, he has wrought our redemption. The tears that Jesus shed were shed by one who has come into the world because of the plight of sinners like you and me, sinners living in the shadow of death. He came to save us by defeating the enemy, by taking away the curse because of his compassion. And because of his tears, someday God will wipe away, we have that assurance, every tear from the eyes of those whom he came to save. Now let me make a couple of applications for you. Christians, Learn this from reading this. Learn from how Christ gave expression to his feelings and thus give expression to your feelings. And most importantly, remember this. What we learn in Romans 12, 15 and from these verses is to rejoice with those who rejoice and to weep with those who weep. It is good and right for us to rejoice when our brothers and sisters have been given something, not to envy them, not to say, oh, I wish that had happened to me, or it's not fair that they got it and I didn't, but rather to be happy for them. When something good happens in the life of someone you know, rejoice with them and do it genuinely. But when, on the other hand, your brothers and sisters suffer loss, don't be embarrassed to mourn with them. And when you lose a loved one, don't feel that you have to pretend you're fine in that moment for the sake of other people. I, I've watched as Christians, and it's, it's, sometimes it's painful to watch, I've watched as Christians have felt constrained to act as though they are happy in the time of the loss of a loved one, because yes, they know the loved one is now with Christ in heaven. And shouldn't that be enough? Shouldn't that be enough consolation for you? Shouldn't you be feeling happy at this point? And so they'll say things like, he's with Jesus, I'm so happy. Well, brothers and sisters, if Jesus could weep with Martha and Mary for his friend Lazarus, even though he was about to raise Lazarus from the dead, so should you weep for the loss of your loved ones. This is good and natural. It's a response to the work of the enemy, death. As J.C. Ryle put it, he said this, it shows us that it is not sinful to sorrow. Weeping and mourning are sadly trying to flesh and blood and make us feel the weakness of our mortal nature, but they are not in themselves wrong. Even the Son of God wept. It shows us that deep feeling is not a thing of which we should be ashamed. To be cold and stoical and unmoved in the sight of sorrow is no sign of grace. There is nothing unworthy of a child of God in tears. Even the Son of God could weep. Secondly, Christians, the God of the Bible shows us again and again that in your toughest moments, know this, he sympathizes with you. He is your sympathetic Savior. Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. And thirdly, take heart to this, that while we deal with the reality of death, 
I mean, we have the reality directly before us this day. I once said to somebody, there is no sermon illustration quite as imposing and as real as a casket. It reminds us all that as they are now, someday we all will be. We deal with the reality of death here on earth. We try to push it away, but it comes roaring back in. Jesus, though you know this, came into the world to put an end to it. In his atoning death on the cross, Jesus triumphed not only over sin and the devil, but he triumphed over death itself. And we read the great good news that when Jesus returns, that he will put an end to death for good. We read in 1 Corinthians 15, 27 and 28, For he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. But until that day, it remains true that all men have a date with death. And no one knows when that time will come. None of you, you can check your Google Calendar. It does not include the date of your particular meeting with your maker. How will that day then be for you, that day that comes so unexpectedly? Even when we know it's on the verge. I heard from Phil's own family. We weren't expecting him to go this quickly. We never know when it's going to happen. So the question is not, will it happen to you? It will. The question is, are you ready for that day? Are you? Jesus knew that in your natural state, just as Phil knew, no man would be ready for that day. That's why he came. Hebrews 9.27 tells us, And as it is appointed for men to die once, but after this the judgment... So Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many to those who eagerly wait for him. He will appear a second time apart from sin for salvation. That is why Jesus was made incarnate. Why he was born of a woman, born under the law. Why he lived a perfect life. Why he suffered such a humiliating death. Setting his face like flint to go up to Jerusalem even after he had told his apostles the horrors that were going to happen there. How he would be scourged how he would be crucified, how he would die on the cross. But he did that so that he might work the death of death for all who believe in him. Now, I tell you this, and I wish I'd known Phil better. It was amazing when uh, I had an opportunity to sit and Linda recounted all of the things that the Lord had been doing in their lives, particularly for the kingdom, how they'd been uh, active in the formation of so many PCA churches, how the Lord had changed um, Phil through EE and, and so on. It was wonderful to hear that. And I prayed on that day for Phil's recovery. But God said no to that prayer. God did something better. Phil knew him. I I know that. I I heard uh, him attempting to to speak, to whisper uh, when I was talking about the Bible, when I was talking about these verses that I read to you. And then Linda confirmed that. I know he trusted in him. And after hearing his and Linda's strong testimony, I have no doubt that, that Phil, where he is now in glory, has nothing to fear for the rest of eternity. And I know he would not be asking to be returned to a body that's racked with illness in a world filled with the effects of sin. Not at all. Not a chance. But I, I must warn you, I have also prayed and asked the Lord to heal those who did not know Christ. And the answer has sometimes been no. The time when I extended 
the free offer of the gospel to them has come to an end. The day of grace is over. They have chosen judgment, and that is what they are going to receive. They will stand before me and be judged upon their own merits, and friends, no one will be able to stand in that day. None of us will have anything but filthy rags if we choose to go in our own righteousness, because that's all they are, filthy rags, not the perfect wedding garment that only Christ can provide. So I beg you, you don't want to be at that point where you are sick and people who love you are desperately praying for a deathbed repentance. I have seen that happening. Do not be that person. Follow the example of your brother Phil and and know this. He asked specifically that I tell you this. Linda said to me, the one thing that Phil and I want is that you would preach the gospel and open that up to people. So I tell you this. I tell you what Phil knew. Bow the knee to Jesus while it is yet day. Bow that knee now and you will have nothing to fear and everything to hope for. And when it comes to that day when we all reach the verge of the river that we have to cross, the billows will not go over your head. You will be borne up and over and you will be entering into the celestial city hearing the praises of the angels. And then those words that I know every Christian wants to hear, well done, O good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord. Phil has done that. The question is, will you? I pray that's the case. If not, don't tarry. Flee to Christ now. Let's go before him. God, our Father, I do pray now, Lord, that everybody would take to heart those words that change, not just the life, but the eternity of Philip. Lord, you worked in his heart a great miracle, taking away a heart of stone and giving him a heart of flesh, that he might spend eternity with you. I pray that everyone who hears my voice this day, that you would do that work in them, or if you have done it, I pray, Lord, that you would comfort them and console them, that their time of suffering and affliction is short and not to be compared with the glory to be revealed in them. Lord, help us to hang on to that that fact until that day when we see you again. We pray this in Jesus' holy name.